Hey man, thanks team, that was great. Uh, just so good to see the faces up here and faces down there. It's been great today to see some, some old faces and some new faces, and uh, very encouraging. Just a quick show of hands, if you were here on the first Sunday that we, that we did this thing down here called RCC, put up your hand. Look at that, about a third of the people here maybe. Okay, and if you were, if you've come in the last three years, why don't you raise your hand, we'll see you too. All right, that's about another third, which I guess means the people in the middle have been here something between uh, one and six years. That's awesome. Good. Well, I mean, this, our, as Ron mentioned, I, I don't know if we would say this exceeded our, our dreams, because I think this is what we expected. Uh, we we kind of knew God would do a thing. But it, the way it, it, it happens and unfolds has just been amazing uh, to watch. Uh, Pastor Levi and I actually had the opportunity this past week. We, we drove down together. Uh, I'm sure most of you know we're kind of in the process of re-affiliating with the wider uh, world. And uh, so we, we rode, not that we were unaffiliated with the wider world until now. That's a weird phrase. But anyway, uh, we drove down to meet with some fellowship representatives. And it was just, it was neat just to uh, hear how he's doing. And, and then it was neat for me to sit there and to hear his testimony. Because part of... Um, Part of the deal is we each had to, you know, convince them that we were saved. And, uh, and so, you know, Levi, Levi gave his, his uh, testimony as well. And it was just neat to be reminded of all that the Lord has done in his life. Uh, to, not just to get him saved, but to get him here. And it's been really fun to have a front row seat for that. And uh, I, I, I know it's always weird. You go to church and they, they pump up the pastor's tires and stuff. But let me pump up Levi's tires because he wouldn't do it for himself. But I, I would just say, I'm absolutely confident you have the right pastor here. And uh, there's, yeah. There's no such thing as a perfect man. And if anyone thought they were a perfect man, they'd be a terrible pastor. Um, but uh, I think you have the right man. And so I'm really excited about that. Well, you didn't come here to hear about me or Pastor Levi or probably even RCC. Uh, as a good Christian, you probably came here to hear about the Christ of Scripture, uh, the promises of Christ in Scripture. That's, that's why we come. That's the best thing about any Sunday. So hopefully you have your Bible and you're going to open it now and you're okay to do that to Matthew 16. And we're going to look at verses 13 to 20. This is a good time uh, to talk about the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, it's a good time to hear something encouraging about the Bride of Christ, because the church has been through a hard season over the last 19 months, and uh, we could use a little good news right about now. I, uh, I facilitate a pastor's forum online. We have about 90 pastors from all across Canada, uh, from different denominations. There's Pentecostals on there, Anglicans, lots of Baptists, unaffiliated evangelicals, uh, some Presbyterians on there. And uh, from all the provinces, right, right, right across, it's a safe place. We've designed it as a safe place for pastors to, to discuss, dialogue, and collaborate over all things related to COVID-19. I'm sure you know uh, the internet generally is not a safe place for pastors to talk about COVID-19. Uh, it's not a safe place in general, um, but definitely not a safe place to be working out your opinions on this pandemic. And so uh, we created this kind of private forum for guys to do that. It's been very interesting. And uh, well, I, I put some polls out there just to kind of, you know, poll the group of pastors. One of the polls I put out asked them, when do you expect that we will finally get back to normal? Meaning, when do you think we'll be able to, you know, get together? A lot of us are meeting in multiple services because we can't, can't fill our folks in the worship space that we have with these restrictions, right? You've got to be so far apart. 
Um, when do you think that we'll be all back to normal, not singing through socks and weird things pressed to our faces? Like, when do you think it'll be, you know, back to normal in that sense? And I provided a bunch of options. Do you know what the number one option was? July of 2022. And, and one guy said the only reason he voted for July of 2022 is it's the furthest option I provided that wasn't never. Well, good news is pastors aren't doctors and they're not politicians, so their feedback on this stuff probably doesn't matter in any kind of determinative sense. But what it does reveal is there's just a fair bit of pessimism out there about the prospects for the Church of Jesus Christ moving forward. We all feel like this is going to be long, hard, and nasty before it's over. In fact, in one of the other polls, I asked the the pastors, what has been the hardest part of the whole pandemic experience, the whole COVID-19 thing for them as pastors. And I expected them to say, you know, trying to get up-to-date protocols because they change the protocols every week. They usually change them on Wednesday and then they apply on Sunday. And uh, it's, it's, uh, maybe I thought that would be the hardest part or maybe getting folks to staff the nursery. Do you know that you're one of the few churches in town that's offering children's ministry right now? Most churches are just having a real hard time getting, getting volunteers back. So I expected that, but you know what the number one answer was? The hardest thing about this pandemic for pastors? The general tone and nastiness of social media. Christians have lost their minds on the internet right now. How many of you know that? Yeah, how many of you are contributing to that? Maybe, maybe don't raise your hands. Yeah, there is a spirit in the church that I have not seen before. It's a spirit of anger, division, arrogance, impatience, it, it almost makes a person despair. It almost makes you wonder whether anyone out there is actually saved. Almost makes you wonder whether COVID-19 has defeated the church of Jesus Christ. But let me assure you, brothers and sisters, it has not. In the providence of God, this experience has pruned the church. It has shaken the church. It has shown the church where the cancer is, where we need to do some work, but it has not defeated the church of Jesus Christ. It has not, it will not, it cannot. And you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? And the reason I know that is because of the passage and the promise that is hopefully open before us now. In this passage that we're going to look at, Jesus makes a bold promise. We're going to try and make sure we understand what he is and isn't saying, and then we'll reflect upon how that promise may be furthered and advanced in our generation. So hopefully you have your Bibles open now to Matthew 16, 13 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My, my plan for this morning is to zoom in on verse 18. Uh, I want to park on that glorious promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to get there. But of course, as you probably recognized as we were reading through that passage, in order to get there, we have to wade through a bit of a hermeneutical minefield, don't we? There are a couple of uh, pretty tricky phrases in that passage kind of guarding our way to this glorious promise. And so we have some, some minds to diffuse, as it were, before we can really lay hold of that. Of course, the first of those landmines is pretty obvious. In the first half of verse 18, Jesus says to Simon, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Jesus gives Simon a new nickname. He's going to call him Peter from now on. Uh, sometimes in your Bible, you'll, you'll encounter that as Cephas. Have you ever noticed that? And that's just because there's nothing tricky there. That's just because most people in those days were bilingual or even trilingual. And so it's pretty common to, to have you know, names in multiple languages. Both Peter and Cephas mean rock. Uh, one's Greek, one's Aramaic. That's it. But the real question is here, here is, why is Jesus calling Peter the rock? And is he calling Peter the rock, like Dwayne Johnson? Uh, by the way, here's how old I am. It took me forever to figure out that Don Johnson and Dwayne Johnson are not the same person. <laughs> but they're not. And that's free. That's, that's, uh, you do with that what you like. But so is, is Jesus calling Peter the rock or our rock? Of course, in this passage, he, he doesn't really specify that. He says, on this rock. He doesn't call Peter the rock, and it would be weird if he did, because actually in the Bible, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the cornerstone in an exclusive and unique sense. Jesus in Matthew 21, 42 said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus is talking about himself there. He says that he is going to be the sole remaining stone from the old house of Israel. And when God rebuilds his people, he's going to rebuild it on Jesus. The church is built on Jesus. His life, his death, his teaching, we forget that sometimes. His life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection his glorious ascension, his present intercession, it is on that that we stand. Church is built on Jesus. So then why does Jesus refer to Peter as if he's going to share in that in some sense? And the answer is that he will in a, in a related sense, not in the exact same sense, but in a related sense. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 19-20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So according to the Apostle Paul, Jesus is the rock, but the apostles generally are also part of the foundation. The prophets and apostles, insofar as they point at Jesus, are the foundation for the church as a whole. So Jesus is the rock, and the apostles are, and the prophets are, are rocks. They are related parts of the foundation as a whole. So what Jesus is saying to Peter here in Matthew 16 is that he is the first stone laid in the larger apostolic foundation of the church. Now, first in terms of sequence, 
not first in terms of authority. In fact, in the New Testament, it looks like the apostles functioned with co-equal authority. In fact, there was that one time, maybe you remember, where Paul, the apostle Paul, had to rebuke the apostle Peter. Do you remember that? It's in Galatians. Galatians 2, Paul says, but when Cephas, there you have Peter called Cephas there, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So that was the time when Peter got a little confused uh, because some fancy folks from Jerusalem came down and they were kind of looking at the work and and Peter felt nervous about eating hot dogs at the Gentile table. And uh, and so he actually, he, he kind of went over and he sat at the Jewish table and uh, had matzah. I don't, I don't know what, what actually they eat at the Jewish table, but not hot dogs. And And Paul actually stood up and said, Peter, you understand that when you do that kind of stuff, when you, when you bow to the, res- the power of the respectable people on these food matters, you actually obscure the gospel. Because all of that was pointing to Jesus, and in Jesus all of that is fulfilled, and in Christ there's no longer Jew or Gentile, and you've just obscured that. Now, I mean, praise God, Peter received that and, and, and corrected whatever obscuring he had done but the point is there was obviously co-equal authority there so to be clear contrary to our roman catholic friends this passage in matthew is not about jesus establishing peter as the first pope what is said about peter here is later said about all the apostles they're all part of the foundation of the church with christ as cornerstone all right next landmine is actually a little easier jesus says in verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Again, what Jesus says about the apostles is actually just an extension or sharing of what the Bible says about him, about Jesus, what Jesus says about himself. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. And Hades. So Jesus decides who gets loosed from hell and who gets let into heaven. He's the key master, right? He's the binder. He's the looser. And in some sense, he shares those keys with the apostles. And, and actually, if you're a Bible reader, you know, in some sense, he shares them with the church as a whole. So flip forward in Matthew to Matthew 18, 15 to 18. There, that little bit about binding and loosing is repeated. Look at verses 17 to 18 there, where Jesus is talking about the person who refuses to listen to the church. This passage will blow your mind. Talking about a person who refuses to listen to the church. Maybe you sit there and you're like, that's me. I don't do a very good job of listening to the church. Maybe. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's whispering to you. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm just reading the text. All right? Matthew 18, 15 to 18. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's an incredible statement. Do you know, so uh, put up your hand just quick. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Put up your hand if you were in the B3 group. We, we ran a B3 group that started off as Cornerstone and, uh, and Redeemer City and then split. So just put up your hands again quick. We got at least two of these guys in, in here. Um, we had split. We had, so there was an RCC group and there was a Cornerstone group by the time we got into this discussion. But I don't know if you heard from the other guys. We spent, we got tripped on this 
And we just decided to sort of toss the lesson plan. We spent an entire night wrestling with this passage. I don't know if you heard about that. Because nobody actually believes that. I mean, I'll read it to you again. There's not a single person in this room who believes this. And if he, so here's a person who doesn't listen to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I mean, that almost sounds like the church matters. That almost sounds like decisions we make as a corporate body have actual authority in heaven. And like I said, there's nobody in here that believes that. We spent an entire night trying to make that passage mean something other than it says. None of us could do it. I mean, this sermon isn't about that passage, so I'm not going to sit here and try to spend 35 minutes telling you where we landed. But I'm just telling you, if you know how to make that passage mean something other than it says, please come and tell me after the service, because we could not do it. I mean, like I said, sounds like the church matters. Yeah. At the start of this pandemic, a, a good friend of mine, um, we went for a walk. We were just trying to figure stuff out. Everybody was confused. When the pandemic hit, it was a little bit like getting hit in the face with a baseball bat, right? Like just for a little while, you, you, just, you felt disoriented and confused and angry. Um, that was supposed to be a short-term thing, uh, that reaction, by the way. If you're still there, uh, you need to settle down. Um, but uh, so, you know, for me, we just felt as a pastor disoriented. And so went for a walk with uh, an older pastor friend. I'm running out of older pastor friends, by the way. I'm not sure why that's happening, but... Um, went for a walk with an older pastor friend, and he, he said, you know, I have a feeling that you know, whatever other purposes God's working, usually God's got like 15 or 16 or 18 or 1,000 purposes on the go, but whatever other purposes God's working, he says, I have a feeling that the effect of this pandemic on the evangelical church will be a complete reevaluation of our ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology is just a big fancy word, which means what we believe about the church. Has anybody been having fresh thoughts about the church over the last 19 months? Does it really matter? I mean, can I just watch a sermon on my phone? I mean, and let's be honest, right? Unless you go to the biggest church in the world, the, mu- the church music on your phone is better than the church music at actual church, right? Most of the time. And again, unless you go to the best like church in the world or whatever, the preaching on your phone is better than the preaching at your local church, usually. I say that as a preacher at a local church. I'm just saying, like, you know, if I had to choose between John Piper and me, I can tell you who I'd choose. So why can't I just listen to sermons on my phone? Why can't I just sing Jesus songs in my car? Does the church even matter? That's the question a lot of evangelicals are asking. Does the church even matter? Meaning we start the conversation at the absolute low watermark. But this passage actually seems to set the bar at the absolute, meaning I actually, we're not sure we believe it, the bar goes that high. Man, but here's Jesus talking about the church like it matters. Talking, talking about the church insofar as it stands on the apostolic foundation, the apostolic witness to Christ. The church is somehow involved in the binding and loosing of souls. That's a big view of church. Jesus is talking about the church as though it's, it's like an embassy of the kingdom of God. 
as, as though it's like a portal from this world into the next. And of course, the devil wants to shut the portal down. But here we're told that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise the Lord. All right, so we've probably <laughs> set one new landmine over here that you can think about later in the day, but at least we've diffused the landmine that's guarding the way to this glorious promise that we're now ready to enjoy. All right, let me read it to you one more time. Jesus says to Simon, as the first of the apostles to get there, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus says to Simon, welcome, Peter. Your faith is not perfect. You know that, right, if you've read the rest of that story. Your faith is not perfect, but you are the first one to get to the essence of the Christian faith. You're the first one to confess me as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that apostolic witness to the Savior, on this foundation, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can you say amen to that? Amen. But you know, here's the thing. That promise is actually significantly better than most evangelicals are inclined to hear it as being. We hear Jesus saying that all hell's going to break loose. Demons are coming for you now, right? This is going to be bad, but the good news is Jesus will never let us utterly and totally fail. Hell will not prevail against us. That's what we hear, but that's not what Jesus said. Hear it again, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me ask you a question. Whose gates are being assaulted in that metaphor? Our gates or the gates of hell? Right? Hell's gates are under assault in this teaching, which means that we're advancing on it. And this is Jesus saying, we are going to win. Come hell or high water, the church of Jesus Christ will advance, increase, and be victorious. Can you say amen to that? Because that's the actual promise. This, listen, this is a promise of growth, harvest, and fruitfulness despite violent and demonic opposition. So it's a strong promise. It's a strong, but it's a hard promise too. Jesus is saying, you're going to bleed, but you're going to win. There may be a few setbacks, but the overall picture here is one of advance, increase, and harvest. So that's good. Jesus is saying here, we're going to take back what the devil has stolen. We're going to plunder the strong man, because Jesus has bound him. And there's nothing he can do now to stop us. So that's the promise that we're offered in this passage. It's supposed to give us hope. It ought to give us tremendous hope. And I think we need a little bit of hope right now because we are living through a time of pruning and apparent decline. Now, there's, I, I chose those words carefully. Apparent decline. Pruning and apparent decline. That's our experience right now. That's what we're going through. And by the way, this is an experience, we have a perspective on this time that is unique to North America, right? In North America, we're experiencing this season in the life of the church in a different way than they're experiencing it in Africa or Asia, for example. That's why I've chosen those words, pruning and apparent decline. Let Let me unpack that for you. How many of you know 
that God is committed to the difficult and painful business of ensuring the long-term health and fruitfulness of the church. And we, we all should know that because Jesus said that. That's in John 15, 1-2. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He, so that's the Father, He takes away. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, He prunes. So it sounds like if you're, if you're bad, you get taken out. If you're good, you get pruned, and that hurts, but it's good for the long term. This is a hard promise. That it may bear more fruit. The it, there's the church or the tree. So according to this passage, the Father takes away. The Father ordains subtractions from the church. I, uh, I grew up in the church. My parents got saved in the Canadian revival just before I was born. So I was the only one of my siblings to have the privilege uh, to be born uh, to, to Christian parents. I grew up in the church. And uh, I used to, because my parents are both go-getters, if you know them. I think within six months of becoming a Christian, my mom was a speaker at Christian Women's Club uh, meetings, and my dad was shortly the chair of our church board, and, and uh, I don't know, he'll probably die in some corner of our church right now painting. You'll find my dad in about 10 years, I think, uh, dead in a corner of the church with a paintbrush stuck to his eyebrow. Uh, you know, our, our folks are kind of all in, all out, so uh, I just kind of grew up in the shadow of the church, and I remember hearing the old-timers when I was a kid talk about blessed subtractions, And uh, every once in a while, somebody would sing it, you know, blessed subtractions, you know, Georgie is gone, you know, whatever. (laughs) It's not right to sing it, but it's not wrong to think it. Meaning, what they were talking about when they talked about blessed subtractions is sometimes there are folks who kind of don't fit a category, right? Like obvious discipline. The church actually does pretty well, or a healthy church, I would say, does pretty well with obvious and overt sinners, Right? Like if you go rob a bank today or if you commit adultery and cheat on your, your wife and run away with the secretary, church actually tends to respond well to that. Like we will come for you. Um, but it's tricky. Like what do you do with just the constant complainers, the dividers, the whisperers, and the obstacles? What do you do with them? About most pastors don't know the answer to that. It's really tricky. Like Nothing really rises to the level of formal discipline. You try to encourage them, but they don't ever listen. What do you do? You get too many of those people in your church, it can stall enthusiasm. It can destroy faith. What do you do? There's not much you can do. So every once in a while, the Father Himself comes along and He beats the tree with a stick. And anyone who is not authentically connected to Jesus falls away on their own. And that's what we used to mean when we talked about blessed subtractions. Now, to be clear, I just want to be clear. We're not talking about folks who are, who are just weak and lost. Like, uh, I love those pictures you see on the Internet. This is, in my mind, the Internet is only good, or social media is only good for pictures of cats and sheep doing funny things. Um, but there is one of a sheep that gets himself head down, stuck in a hole. And so the shepherd comes and he pulls him out of the sheep. And the sheep's so excited, he dances around and lands right head first in another hole. And so I, just to be clear, I'm not talking about you know, just the weak sheep who need a little help making their way back to church. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about non-Christian folks, folks who were never saved, who were hanging around, but who were never actually abiding in Christ. According to Jesus, 
Every once in a while, the father comes around and knocks the tree with a stick. And, and those are the folks who fall off and fall away. Now, it's, it's traumatizing in the short term, but it's life-giving in the long term. And we've been seeing a lot of that. It creates the appearance of decrease and decline. And that's, that's what we're going through right now as an evangelical church in, I would say, the Western world, North America in particular. In one of the polls on the pastor's forum I mentioned, I asked pastors what percentage of their pre-COVID congregation had returned from the trauma of the pandemic. The average in Canada is between 50 and 70%. That's evangelical churches. Mainline church, a lot of mainline churches still haven't opened yet. Who knows if there'll be anybody coming back. So it looks like the church is shrinking. But is it? Or were we simply overcounting the number of true sheep we had in our flocks to begin with? You see, real believers were not blown away by COVID-19. Real believers aren't blown away by anything. When God shakes the tree, the dead wood falls off, and the connected branches burst into bloom. That's what's going on in this season. This prune, this blessed subtraction that we're seeing in the wider evangelical church, this is not a retreat, this is a renewal. This is the end of something and the beginning of something. I've said to a lot of people over the last six months, I truly believe that the next 10 years are going to be the hardest years we've ever gone through as evangelicals in North America. And then after that, we're going to have the greatest harvest we've ever seen in the history of our nation. Now, you might quibble with me about the numbers and the dates, but I don't see how you can quibble with me about the general trajectory. According to Jesus, we may have brief setbacks. We may need to undergo some some pruning. We may experience some severe headwinds, but the general trajectory, according to this promise, is up, 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 and up. Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, how is this all likely to work out? I want to spend our last couple of minutes together just thinking through the future advance of the church. How is this going to happen? Well, how did Jesus say it's going to happen? First answer to that question, I would argue, is this, by being salt and light. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. In Matthew 5.14, he said, you are the light of the world. So Jesus says we're supposed to be visibly different than the surrounding culture. I'm going to say this real slow and real loud. Different, but near. That's the basic strategy, right? Be different. Don't, if you are just like the world, then there's no contrast. Light and salt are both images of contrast. That's it. It's not rocket science. You know, I could tell you a whole bunch of things about salt. I could tell you that they used to pay Roman soldiers in salt because it's super expensive. How does that matter? How does that help? The point is, salt is different than the meat, and it preserves the meat, right? There's your basic metaphor. Light, I could tell you lots of stuff about light. It functions as a particle and as a wave. Weird. That's not the point. Point is, contrast with the dark, right? In a real dark world, you can see a bright light from a long way away. What's the point? Contrast. You know what the strategy is? Don't be a jerk. Like, that's the strategy. Don't be a jerk. As the world's going nuts, be stable. As people are being angry and hostile and and uncivil, 
Be kind and merciful and polite. As family has fallen apart, men, you be faithful to your wives. As people are worshiping at the idol of money and success, you prioritize faith and family. Contrast. Be different and be near. I I agree with what my friend said at the beginning of this pandemic, my older pastor friend. I think that this pandemic will result in a total revisiting of evangelical polity, uh, ecclesiology. We're going to rethink a lot of stuff. We have rethought a lot of stuff. It's been very good for us. But I'm just going to add to that. That's what I thought at the start of the pandemic. It's still true. I'll tell you what I think now at what I hope is the end. It's either the end of the pandemic or the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning or something. Got to be closer to the end now. Here's what I think now. I, I think the greatest impact of this pandemic upon the evangelical church might be the realization that we stink at behavior. Here's an observation. Evangelicals are awesome at the belief side of the Christian faith. Like, we nail it. Like, we are so good at that, right? Like, we've turned everything into a formula. Like, you want to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ? We've got it nailed down, right? We, you know, we argue about that. We'll punch people over that stuff. Penal substitutionary atonement. We've got acronyms, PSA. Like, we have thought through that. And I just want to be clear, I'm happy about that. Because you do have to believe some stuff in order to be a Christian. Amen? Like, if you don't believe that, you know, Jesus absorbed the curse and, and that the wrath of God was poured out on the sin that Jesus bore, that he became sin, uh, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian, correct? Right. Okay, so belief matters. But, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't say, I am the truth, follow me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which actually sounds like there's two things there on behavior and one thing there on belief. I think evangelicals are awesome at belief and horrific at behavior. And have we not discovered that over the course of this pandemic? I think we need another reformation. We had a Reformation 500 years ago to figure out belief, didn't we? And praise God, let's be thankful for that. Let's not undo that in this generation. But can we now have a Reformation of behavior, please? Can we have like a Sermon on the Mount thing? Man, think of all the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that none of us believe. (laughs) Turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. We're all like, whatever, I'm packing right now. I'll shoot you in the face while you look at me. Because I'm a Christian. Right? What? Somebody, somebody takes your cloak, you give them your coat as well? Well, yeah, but that's communism. We don't believe any of this stuff about Christian behavior anymore, do we? You want to know the best way to get yourself made fun of by Christian friends? Talk about meekness. Right? Man, we need a reformation of Christian behavior. Because actually Jesus says, if we lose this, we are useless. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Interestingly, in the, in the Bible, 
You can get your way into trouble and punishment and exile and remedial discipline either through wrong beliefs or wrong behavior. But the Bible actually says there's a bit of a canary in the coal mine with, with respect to obedience. If you start acting just like the people in the world, usually in the Old Testament, that's the canary in the coal mine. You're, I don't know if that expression still works. Uh, apparently, I was never there. Ron, I don't know if you were there. Uh, but back in the day, uh, they used to take canaries in a cage down into the open coal mines uh, because canaries are very sensitive to the noxious fumes down there. And so if the canary died, that was the sign that the workers needed to get out of the mine because some, somebody had opened a vein of noxious fumes. So a dead canary in a cage is an indication that, that something bad's about to happen. That's my point. In the Bible, you know something bad's about to happen when God's people look exactly like the world around them. That's the canary in the coal mine. In Ezekiel 11, God was just about to do the worst chastisement in the Old Testament. Like, this is a severe, severe chastisement. But before he does it, he tells them why. That's always helpful. I always found that helpful. Right before mom pulled out the wooden spoon, she'd be like, now I want you to know what this is about. <laughs> like, I got an idea. Um, but God wants them to know what it's about. Here it is, Ezekiel eleven twelve. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, listen, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. You're just like everybody else now. That's the point of no return. God absolutely cannot let that slide. And so that's, that's the, the, the place when you know discipline is coming. When worldly patterns and behaviors are normative in the church of Jesus Christ, Discipline is coming. Are you feeling that? I, I, I tell you, I can hear the footsteps. You know, do you remember when you were a kid and you did something super sinful and mom sent you up to your room and she said, Dad's going to deal with you when he gets home? Remember that? And you heard your dad's footsteps coming up the stairs and you realize, okay, it's game on. I've been working on my story, right? <laughs> like I... Can you hear the footsteps on the stairs? It's discipline time, friends. And we have no one but ourselves to blame. We could have done our own internal moral reformation 30 years ago when we saw this starting to happen. But we didn't. Now we have to take our medicine. But the good news is that God is an excellent parent. And so he's going to get us sorted out. He's going to get us squared away. I believe, like I said, I think the next 10 years are going to be the hardest 10 years we've ever been through. But I think God is going to use those 10 years to restore our distinctive witness in the culture. When this is over, you're going to know who's a Christian and who's not. When this 10-year stretch is over. We're going to be salt and light again. How do I know? Because Jesus says, Jesus says, this is part of the plan, this is part of the program. The church is going to grow and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us, praise the Lord. Second thing, based on the things Jesus himself has said here, we expect this increase to happen through patient endurance and consistent focus. Turn, turn back in your Bible just a couple pages to Matthew 10, 16-23. We don't have time to read through the whole passage, but I want to hit the highlights with you. Verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. By the way, isn't it interesting that to call someone a sheep has become an insult in the Christian church? This is how far we are from the values and behaviors and norms of the Scripture. Now, if you want to make fun of somebody, you're just like, man, you're a sheeple. 
I'm supposed to be a sheep. Like, what are you doing? Why are you criticizing me for what is happening? Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. So just because we win in the end doesn't mean it will all be sunshine and roses. Nope. Expect to be bitten. Like, I'm not a big master of metaphors, but I think I got this one, right? You send sheep out in the midst of wolves, you expect to be bitten. Amen? Okay, mark that one down. All right, so we expect to be bitten. We expect to be harassed. We expect hard times. But Jesus says, but don't allow yourself to be changed by that. Don't become hard yourself. Be innocent as doves. All right, now drop down to verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Right? So expect division, expect hostility, expect betrayal, but stay on mission. Don't fight back. Don't get sucked into the culture wars. Just preach the gospel and move on. You're not going to run out of people to evangelize before Jesus comes back. I love that. Verse 23, Jesus says, If a city turns against you, don't fight them. Don't burn down the city. Don't try to take it over. Just go somewhere else. You're not going to run out of opportunities before the return of the Lord. Isn't that brilliant? How many of us, though, are trying to take back the city? Whereas Jesus told us to get on with the mission. All my friends, I'll tell you, I'm so tired of culture warriors and freedom fighters right now. Jesus promised that we would be subject to mistreatment. Jesus said that we would preach through closing doors. He didn't say to kick the door. He didn't say to burn down the door. He said if they start closing the door, go through a window. You know, here's the problem, I'll tell you, for evangelicals in North America. We grew up with maximal permission, right? The door was wide open. We were given the keys to the city. Door was wide open. And now for the first time in our days, the door is starting to close just a little bit, just a little bit. But brothers and sisters, still a lot of operative room here. I'm preaching on the Bible. You, you point to, I could preach on any passage in this Bible. We just preach through the Bible at our church. I know you do the same. We just preached through Leviticus and no one tasered me. I preached on Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. You know, if you're a Bible reader, what I was talking about. Nobody tasered me. The permission in our culture is nearly maximal, but we have a whole bunch of people who want to fight about this, right? They want to fight about this angle instead of doing mission through this permission. That's got to stop. That's got to stop. We will not run out of opportunities before the Lord returns. That's a promise from Jesus. He's a reliable dude. And so you you work through whatever opportunities and permission you have. Don't waste any time kicking down doors and taking back cities. Just do your job. The church grows when we get on with it when we just patiently endure everything that the world throws at us, and like the Energizer Bunny, we just keep on going. 
When we do that, we grow. We expand, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And then lastly, according to Jesus, the church is going to grow by going into all the world to make disciples. You know, a funny thing about this pandemic, it has been harder, actually, a little bit, to exercise influence at the local level because of all the health restrictions, but easier to make an impact globally. The, the pandemic forced churches to figure out the Internet. You know, it was interesting at, at Cornerstone, uh, because we were blessed, we had, we had Pastor Evan, and then we had Pastor Matt, and we had some video technologies and stuff. It, for the first six months of the pandemic, we had ridiculous numbers of people watching us online because all these small churches all across Canada couldn't figure out the technology, right? So they would shut down and they'd say, whoa, well, you know, watch Cornerstone. Or what, what? And so it was interesting. But then we, we started seeing that go down, and we were worried at first, like, are our people not tracking? Uh, and then we figured out, no, 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 it's not that our people aren't tracking. It's that churches everywhere have now figured this stuff out. Churches that didn't have a website before COVID struck now have a YouTube channel, a podcast, and a weekly service online. Now listen, like I just did the whole thing about cell phone, we've got to be together. But interestingly, that during this period of shutdown, people figured out how to put the gospel on the internet. i got news for you. There are lots of places you can't get physical bodies right now, but you can get the internet. It, it's been interesting, right? We all figured out how to put resources online that are now being used by the global church. I get calls and emails from pastors in Zambia and South Africa who are using our stuff. You just think, what an incredible opportunity that is. And then the pandemic forced us to shut down a ton of our in-house programs. You know, if you were at our AGM a couple weeks ago, we saved an incredible amount of money this past year. Our people continued to give, and we couldn't spend it on ourselves because we were shut down half the time, which gave us the opportunity to pump a bunch of that money over and above to our partners overseas. Here's my point. Sometimes oppression and difficulty is ordained by God in one place in order to drive people and resources into another place. And if you're a Bible reader, you know that. Because in Acts chapter 8, the church is sitting pretty in Jerusalem. Everything's concentrated there. Why not? Center of the world, right? Then a persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the hardest place in the world to be a Christian. So what does it do? It drives Christians out of Jerusalem and into every city and village in the Roman world. And they started preaching the gospel. See that? A door closed here and they started driving money and resources through a window over there. Listen, don't waste your life kicking at closing doors. Use whatever opportunities you have. Preach through whatever windows you can crack open. Brothers and sisters, don't let anything distract you from the cause of global mission. Can I tell you something? Right now, we need a little less revolution in the church and a little more redirection. Because there's a great deal of work being done by the bride of Christ in the developing world. You with me on that? Let's take it anywhere we can go. Let's go into all the world. Are you with me on that? Because I'll tell you something, Jesus is with us on that. He didn't promise to be with us in our political agitations. He didn't promise to be with us in our scramble for privilege and power. 
But he did promise to be with us in our pursuit of the Great Commission. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, you have been teaching and leading us well over these last 19 months. You do everything well. Nothing has happened to us over these last many months that did not come through your fingers and that has not been tuned and limited so as to secure the great ends of your glory and the good of your people. And so, Lord, we receive it. We receive it, open our eyes to all the lessons contained within it. And, Lord, we would ask, Holy Spirit, would you do your work in this church, in RCC, in this church, and through this church, in the city of Aurelia, and also to the ends of the earth. I ask that in Jesus' name.